The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 196 Jesus Christ Crucified The Jewish leaders had power over many aspects of life in Jerusalem and Judea. But the ultimate authority was the Roman Empire. From Rome, the emperor appointed governors to oversee each territory the empire conquered. In Jerusalem, the governor was a man named Pontius Pilate. The members of the Sanhedrin had agreed with the other Jewish leaders that Jesus should be executed but they did not kill him themselves. They wanted the Romans to do it. After daybreak, the Sanhedrin had officially sentenced Jesus to death for blasphemy. Now the Jewish leaders and soldiers took Jesus, bound in chains, from the court of the Sanhedrin to the judgment hall and Pilate the governor. The Jews stayed outside the hall, since non-Jews like Pilate lived there. The Jews had a rule that going inside would make them symbolically unclean, which would mean they could not eat the Passover that they would be keeping that night, a day late. They observed this rule, which wasn't in the Bible, even as they were blatantly breaking God's law against killing an innocent man. Pilate came out, looked at Jesus, then looked at the Jewish leaders. What accusation are you bringing against this man? He asked. Trust us, said one of the priests. If he was not a criminal, we would not be bringing him to you. The priest had not answered Pilate's question. He could sense that something was not quite right about the situation. You have authority, Pilate answered. Take him and judge him according to your laws. With Jewish religious and legal cases, Pilate usually just signed off on whatever the Sanhedrin decided. It is not lawful for us to execute him. Another priest responded. We need your approval. Pilate looked back at Jesus. This was serious. These powerful Jewish leaders wanted to kill this man. They indicated that he was guilty of treason and they wanted him executed the way the Romans executed the worst enemies of the state. Pilate went back inside the judgment hall and told one of his aides to bring Jesus in. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of many things. He was perverting the nation. He was telling them not to pay taxes to Caesar. He was telling them that he was their king. The Sanhedrin had sentenced him to death for blasphemy. Now they were illegally switching the accusation to treason. But Jesus did not respond to the long list of accusations. Finally, Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus looked at him. Is this question something that you want to know? Or is it something that the others have accused me of saying? Am I a Jew? Pilate answered, your own people are accusing you to me. What have you done? 
My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus answered, If it were, my servants would fight to keep me from being arrested by the Jews. But my kingdom is not like other kingdoms. Are you a king? Pilate repeated, You say I am a king. This is why I was born. The reason I came into the world is to bear witness of the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate sat back in his chair. Day after day, he dealt with Roman leaders, Jewish leaders, businessmen, family members, accusers, guilty people, innocent people, all claiming different things and all claiming to be telling the truth. What is truth? He asked, then stood abruptly and went out again to the Jews. He knew they were not being honest with him. Jesus did not deserve punishment or death or the torturous crucifixion that the Jews were demanding. I have found this man to be innocent, Pilate announced. The priests and elders narrowed their eyes. They did not want Pilate to stand in their way. He had authority over them, but there were ways they could force him to back down and do what they wanted. Already, a large crowd of Jews had gathered at the judgment hall, and the Jewish leaders had been talking with many of them, telling them lies and trying to turn them against Jesus. This man's teachings have stirred up people throughout the Jewish nation, from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. The priest told Pilate firmly, when Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he thought of a way out. You say this man is from Galilee? He asked. The priest nodded. Herod Antipas is the governor of Galilee. He is here in Jerusalem. Take your prisoner to him. Pilate released Jesus back into the custody of the Jewish leaders. Angry, they turned away from the judgment hall and began marching Jesus to Herod's mansion in the city. Pilate had refused them. They did not know what Herod would do, and all of this was taking too much time. Sunset and the holy day were coming soon. Several minutes later, the group arrived before Herod. Herod was excited to see Jesus. He had heard about his teachings and his miracles and was intrigued. He had wanted to meet him for a long time, and he had hoped to see him work a miracle. When the messenger told Herod why Pilate had sent Jesus to him, Herod asked Jesus question after question about his teachings, about what the Jews were accusing him of, and about whether he could perform a miracle right then. Jesus faced the false accusations against him and Herod's questions without answering back at all. Herod listened to the accusations of the Jews and tried to make Jesus respond, but without success. Herod and his men insulted and mocked Jesus, even finding a royal-looking robe and putting it on him over his chains. Then Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, allowing him to make the final decision. With a large crowd now outside the judgment hall, Pilate gathered a large group of chief priests and rulers together before him and sat down in the judgment seat.
Before he spoke, an aide handed him a note. He unrolled it and found that it was from his wife. It read, Do not have anything to do with that just man. I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. You have accused Jesus of Nazareth of teaching people to commit treason against the Empire of Rome, Pilate said. I have examined him before you, and I have found him innocent of these accusations. I sent you to Herod, and Herod has found him innocent. I will at least chastise him for you, but then I will release him. No! Several of the Jewish leaders shouted, Pilate might have authority, but they would bend him to their will. He was unpopular among the Jewish people because of some of the things he had done in the past. The Jewish leaders could cause him trouble by stirring up the people and possibly getting him in trouble with his Roman superiors. Who would be displeased if he did not keep the Jewish nation under control? But Pilate was uncomfortable with what they were demanding. For the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he traditionally showed the Jews favor by pardoning a prisoner. If the people asked for Jesus to be freed, then they would publicly override what the Jewish leaders were trying to do to him. Whom do you want me to free? Pilate asked the crowd. Barabbas? Or Jesus the Christ? The Jewish leaders were one step ahead of Pilate. Already they had sent servants and prominent men to the waiting crowd, telling as many people as they could that if Pilate offered to release a prisoner, they should ask for him to release not Jesus of Nazareth, but a man named Barabbas, even though Barabbas had been in prison for robbery, murder, and treason. The crowd said the governor should release Barabbas. Pilate responded to the leader, saying, There must be some way to work this out. Jesus of Nazareth is innocent. How can I sentence him to be crucified? The leaders were getting bolder and bolder. Just crucify him! Crucify him! They said loudly, Why? Pilate asked, What evil has he done? I have found no reason to execute him. I will chastise him, just as I said I would, and then I will release him. He knew that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus, not because he was evil, but because they envied him. But among the Jewish leaders and among the crowd, a bold, impatient, violent emotion was swelling. The priests had turned the crowd against Jesus and they were shouting for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. The noise from the crowd grew louder and louder. Some men in the front began to grab and pound on the wooden gates and fence around the judgment hall. Pilate was the official judge in Jesus' case. In three official statements, Pilate had publicly and firmly stated that Jesus was innocent. But the Jewish leaders were so determined to have their way that they were willing to cause major problems and perhaps a riot that could cost Pilate his governorship or worse. Glaring at the Jewish leaders and taking a pitcher of water, he walked to the railing and looked down at the crowd outside that was shouting at him. The commotion quieted to see what he would do. Pilate poured water into a basin and washed his hands, holding them up for everyone to see. I am innocent of the killing of this just person, he said. You do it. A chair went up from the crowd. 
Some shouted that they were so sure Jesus should be killed that they wanted the responsibility for it to be on them and even on their children. Jesus' illegal trial abruptly ended and he was taken immediately to be punished. Jesus had been provided with no defense and even didn't speak much to defend himself. He didn't have to. Both Pilate and Herod knew he was innocent, as Pilate proclaimed several times. But he allowed the religious leaders, who he knew were envious, and the mob, which he knew was not concerned about justice, to prevail. He consented to Jesus being tortured and murdered, even though he knew he was innocent. The Roman soldiers rudely stripped Jesus of his clothes and put a fancy robe on him to mock him and the idea that he was a king. One soldier led Jesus down the street by his chains with other soldiers and the crowd surrounding him shouting nasty things at him. The soldier took him to a post and roughly bent him over it, tying his hands near the bottom. Then a large soldier approached, and the crowd backed away. This tall, muscular soldier held a scourge. A scourge was a flog used to torture people. It consisted of a leather handle, connected to several long, thick leather straps. Tied along each strap were several iron balls and sharp pieces of bone. The soldier swung the scourge down as hard as he could, and the leather straps lashed Jesus' back. The pieces of bone cut into his flesh, and the metal balls bruised him. Then the soldier swung again, and again, and again. Each time, the straps, the bone shards, and the heavy balls tore, bruised, and dug into Jesus' body and whipped flesh and blood out of him. Jesus' body was being ripped open. Blood ran down his gaping wounds. His blood stained the scourge, the post, and the ground beneath him. It spattered on the soldier and even on the stone several feet away. Why was this happening? This was Jesus the Christ, sacrificing his body for mankind. This was what the broken, unleavened bread at the Passover meal the night before had symbolized. Jesus was not only a man, but also God. Through him, God had created Adam and Eve and all human beings who had come from them. He was the creator, and his life and his suffering were worth far more than all human lives and all human suffering. When human beings break the laws of gravity, cleanliness, nutrition, or other laws of physics and biology, 
they suffer consequences. Their health suffers, even to the point of death. This is the law of cause and effect. Breaking physical laws results in the penalty of physical suffering. But Jesus was allowing his body to be beaten to pay that penalty. He was being beaten to pay the penalty for our physical sins. Those who truly believe and obey Jesus Christ and follow his instructions for anointing and healing can ask him to heal their physical injuries and sicknesses. God can apply Jesus' suffering to our lives and take away our suffering and disabilities. He willingly suffered that beating for us. And we can ask God for miraculous healing thanks to Jesus' sacrifice. After dozens of lashes with the scourge, the Roman soldier finally stopped whipping Jesus. The crowd taunted and mocked him and screamed at him. Other soldiers came up and roughly handled Jesus as they untied his hands. They yanked him away from the post and he stumbled. One of them had taken a catcus-like plant with long thin thorns that were about an inch long formed it into a circle. Here's your crown, king, said the soldier, jamming it down onto Jesus' head. The thorns thrust into his skull. Another soldier took a flimsy reed and put it in Jesus' hand as if it were a scepter, laughing at him. <laughs> Another snatched it back out and struck Jesus with it on his open wounds. Others spit on him and in his face. All hail! shouted the soldier. This is the king of the Jews! The crowd roared with laughter, shouted insults at Jesus, and yelled out how loyal the Jews were to Caesar. They found the scourging and suffering of Jesus right before the Holy Day to be an enjoyable spectacle, like watching a sporting match. There was a man who claimed he was the Son of God, being humiliated in the worst way possible. They did not know it, but Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He was their Creator, and he was enduring this ridicule, an indescribable pain for them and for all human beings. He was fulfilling one of the most important missions of God's master plan. The Roman soldier yanked on Jesus' chains, pulling him down the road toward a gate leading out of the city. The scourging had left Jesus terribly disfigured and horrifically injured. Three other soldiers brought over a heavy beam of wood. This is what they would soon nail him to in order to crucify him. They put one end on the ground and dropped the other end on Jesus' back, sending explosions of pain through his entire body and knocking him to the ground. Carry it! One of the soldiers hissed. Jesus tried to carry it 
But he had not gone far before the pain of his open wounds and the weight of the rough beam dropped him to the ground. We don't have all day! One of the Jewish officers yelled from the crowd. The soldiers forced the man passing by to carry the beam, and they dragged Jesus onward and out through the city gate. Again, Jesus stumbled to the ground. He had lost a large amount of blood, and even the air touching his deep wounds was agonizing. As he stumbled onward, someone offered him vinegar and gall to drink. This mixture could slightly dull the pain. When Jesus tasted it, he refused it. He knew he had to go through this torture without any painkillers. Following Jesus and the crowd was a large group, including women, who were crying at the terrible sight of Jesus, who no longer looked like a human being. Though unimaginable pain racked his entire body, Jesus could still think clearly. He turned to the women and told them not to cry for him, but to cry for themselves and for their children. He said a terrible time was coming soon, and if people were capable of scourging and crucifying an innocent man, even when times were good, how horrible would they be to each other in a time of suffering? Jesus was prophesying of the terrible siege and destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the end-time invasion of the city by the Gentiles just before his return. Finally, after walking about 600 yards, the procession arrived at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. The stones that formed this small bluff somewhat resembled a skull. Here the soldiers pushed Jesus to the ground and dropped the beam next to him. Seizing his hands, they put them together on the beam as its rough surface dug into his raw back. As one soldier pressed down on him and another gripped his hands, a third took a mallet and drove large iron spikes through his hands. The soldiers then nailed Jesus' feet to the stake as he writhed in pain. They attached a sign to the stake that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then they raised up the stake, along with Jesus, and dropped it into a hole so it would stand upright. As it hit the bottom, Jesus' senses exploded with even further agony. Meanwhile, other soldiers were torturing others who had been condemned to crucifixion. Jesus was grouped with terrible criminals, as if he was one himself. The soldiers had finished most of their part of the torture. Now they were in charge of just sitting and watching Jesus and the other victims to make sure that they died and to make sure no one tried to intervene. Sitting together, Four of the soldiers took the garments that Jesus had been wearing before they had scourged him and divided them into four parts, 
one for each soldier. However, his tunic was a quality woven garment without a seam. Let's not cut this up into pieces, said one of the soldiers. Let's gamble for it. This fulfilled a prophecy about the Christ in Psalm 22:18. They parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Despite the humiliation and the excruciating pain, Jesus Christ did not think of himself. He continued to focus on others, praying, Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. As crowds of people who were in the city for the Feast of Unleavened Bread walked by, they read the sign above Jesus' head and shook their heads, yelling insults at him. Many had been told lies about what Jesus had said. They believed he deserved the suffering he was experiencing. You said that you would destroy the temple and you rebuilt it in three days? One man shouted, having been told the same lie that the two false witnesses accused Jesus of. Then this should be easy. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from that stake. Many of the priests, scribes, and elders remained near the crucifixion site. Some were walking nearby. He did miracles. He saved others. But somehow he cannot save himself. One priest said, looking at a Roman officer, he added, If he is the king of Israel, let him perform a miracle and come down from that stake that he is nailed to. Then we will believe him. Looking at the other priests, he said, This man trusted in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants him. After all, he told us he was the Son of God. These insults fulfilled another prophecy in Psalm 22, verse 7 to 8, in which God prophesied that he would be scorned in this way. Even the criminals who were crucified nearby mocked and insulted Jesus. One mocked him, saying, If you are the Christ, hurry up and save yourself and us from this horror. But another criminal rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God, since you are suffering the same fate? We deserve this because of our crimes. But this man is innocent. Then he turned his head toward Jesus' stake and said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knew his life was almost over, but he hoped there would be another life ahead in the kingdom of God. <sighs> Through gasp of air, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That day, Jesus and the others crucified next to him would go into the grave, not the kingdom of God. But because of what Jesus was doing that day, sacrificing his life for the sins of all mankind, billions of people, including those guilty of terrible sins, will be in the kingdom of God once they repent and accept his sacrifice. Even nailed to a stake, Jesus was delivering 
a message of hope. Struggling to lift himself up a few inches for another breath of air, Jesus looked down from the stake through a red blur. He saw his disciple John close by, along with some women who had followed and served him during his ministry. One of them was his mother, the woman who had nurtured him, who had taught him scriptures, and who was now here weeping over her son who did not even look like a human being any longer. Even now, Jesus Christ kept his thoughts off himself and focused on loving others. He called to John and told this disciple, whom he loved, to treat his mother like his own and to take care of her. It was approaching noon. Jesus had been suffering on the stake for three hours. Throughout the experience of evil men arresting him, putting him through an illegal trial, sentencing him to death, berating him, beating him, scourging him, torturing him, and crucifying him, he had exerted enormous effort to avoid becoming delirious he remained focused on God and on others, never letting his guard down, completely resisting every selfish thought. In the spirit world, demons swirled around him, gleeful at his suffering and hoping to see him sin. And Satan, having failed to tempt Jesus into sin during his entire life, now broadcast every selfish, evil thought he could. But Jesus Christ, even in this physically weakened state, was too spiritually strong for him. What's going on? One of the priest's servants asked. Looking up at the sky, others began to exclaim, as the sun itself became dark at noon. The soldiers, the Jewish leaders, and the rest of the crowd grew silent. This was not an eclipse. Something supernatural was happening. A few of the soldiers looked at each other, fearful. In the city, Pilate and his wife went to the window and looked out at the blackened city and the blackened sky. This was a sign from God, and it was not a good one. God the Father was suffering through this ordeal with his son. He deeply craved a way to stop his son's horrible suffering. But this was the only way to save human beings from their sins, including the ones who were killing his son. After a few minutes, people in the crowd began to murmur. Some left and returned with torches. Some began to talk with each other again but much more subdued than before. There were no further supernatural signs occurring, but the darkness and a resulting chill remained.
to fulfill his mission, Jesus Christ would have to become the sacrifice for sin. All the evil, wretched, disgusting, wicked sins that human beings committed would have to be placed on him. Jesus had to bear the full weight of all sin and actually be forsaken by God. On the stake, Jesus seemed to lose all strength as his body collapsed. Then he lifted up his head and wailed from swollen lips. Eli! Eli Lama Sabachthani! Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father, who loved Jesus so deeply and who had been with him for eternity, had turned away from him because he was now the sin sacrifice. And the Father removes himself completely from sin. Jesus was now completely alone. He was losing what blood he had left. He had now been suffering on the stake for almost six hours experiencing relentless agony, inability to breathe, horrendous dehydration, and now the spiritual absence of his father. It sounds like this man is calling for Elijah. One man in the crowd said, Well, let's see if Elijah comes. Another sneered, then grew quiet again, looking around at the darkness and wondering when it would go away. Jesus cried out again. Eli! Someone ran and found a sponge and poured some sour wine from the soldier's container on it, lifting it up atop a reed for Jesus to drink. After drinking the sour wine, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. Nearby, a soldier stood up and yanked his spear out of the ground. Their orders were to stay with these being crucified until they were dead. And he decided this crucifixion had gone on long enough. Trained to throw his spear at an enemy warrior, the soldier found Jesus' vulnerable body to be an easy target. The soldier reached back and rammed the weapon into Jesus' side. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Blood and water gushed out of his wound. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bled to death. Sin after sin had been committed against Jesus. Sin after sin had been put on his head, and one final sin of murder ended his human life. Jesus Christ was dead, and the Father was alone. Jesus had subjected himself to God's plan, and like the lambs in the city being slaughtered for Passover, he died to pay for the sins of all human beings. 
although a Roman soldier dealt the death blow with his spear and killed Jesus. The real reason he died was because of the sins that each person commits. When you repent of your sins and ask God to apply the death of Jesus Christ as payment instead of your death, God can forgive you of those sins and ultimately save you from the penalty of eternal death. When Jesus died, the ground began to shake violently. Large rocks split apart. People cried out and stumbled as they tried to remain standing. Then it stopped. The soldier dropped his bloody spear and everyone looked wide-eyed at the body of Jesus and then at each other. What had just happened? The Roman centurion in command looked at the soldiers and the Jewish leaders nearby, shocked and fearful. He did not understand everything that had led up to this point. But a powerful God had just covered the land in darkness and shaken it violently, just as Jesus of Nazareth had been executed. Looking at the body of Jesus, the centurion said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Across the way, inside the temple, the 60-foot-tall, 30-foot-wide veil that separated the inner temple into two rooms miraculously ripped in half from top to bottom. Opening the way to the inner room where God dwelled in spirit. This was a miraculous and wonderful sign. It symbolized that Jesus Christ had succeeded right down to his last breath. He had lived as a human being and remained completely sinless. His sacrifice for sin made it possible for people to finally have access to God the Father. Jesus Christ had accomplished his mission. God the Father could bring human beings into the God family. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church. Thank you.